Once again, this week, it is good to be in the presence of God together with you to open up the Word of God. But before I do that, I want to make a clarification concerning a statistic that I cited in my sermon last week. In the introduction to my sermon, I compared the number of those who had died so far of COVID-19, which is about 90,000 at that point, with the number of those who die from accidents every year, 170,000. And in the context, my comparison implied that those 170,000 accidental deaths are all from vehicle uh, accidents. And I was going to a I was going by a CDC chart that just simply listed accidents, and I jumped to the wrong conclusion, and I want to clarify that. There are actually less than 40,000 that actually die from just that one kind of accident, that is vehicle accidents. But the point that I was making is still not affected by that statistic. The point that I was making is that on a regular basis, we take calculated risks, and we don't wait until automobile fatalities come all the way down to zero before we ever take a drive in our car. But because of the uh, unseen nature of this coronavirus, there's a lot of fear that goes on, especially with the way it's all being hyped up in the media. And uh, so we feel like we're in very much a lack of control as we um, navigate ourselves through this crisis. But the great truth that quiets our hearts is the sovereignty of God in, in his full control of this whole situation. Now, before we approach the subject of the providence of God once again. Let's now pray for the help and the grace of God. Holy Father, we thank you and we bless you that you have been faithful to us ever since we have come to know you and even before. We bless you that from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. We bless you that you see the end from the beginning and you plan all of our days. We bless you that you have appointed these things that we have been experiencing in these days and you are not Uh, frustrated and worried about how this is all going to work out. We thank you, Lord, that we can rest in your plan and in your care. And we pray that you would even be pleased right now to manifest your presence with us during this hour. We pray that you would quiet our hearts, that you would enable us to enter into your presence and know that you are God and that we would be still and know that you are God. We pray all these things in the presence and the grace in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I want to begin by saying something about the motivation of my preaching this series of sermons at this time. Uh, Day after day day in recent weeks, we've been exposed to a veritable avalanche of information about this coronavirus. And just as unsettling to many of us is the way that this matter is constantly being politicized. Our country is being ripped apart in respect to the response to this, this crisis. And emotions run very high because this is a life and death matter. And many of us are also disturbed by the way in which it's affected our livelihoods and also by the way in which many things that are proposed in this crisis uh, threaten our religious freedom, our personal freedoms. And so for these many reasons, we have a genuine fear for the future of our country. And the underlying reason for this series, therefore, is my desire to help you to get your eyes off the creature, get your eyes off this creaturely virus off the governor, over the, off the president, and off of people, politicians, to get your eyes off of these things and to get them focused instead upon the creator and sustainer of all things. Now, there are many aspects of the doctrine of God's providence that we could examine. 
And our confession deals with many of those aspects, such as the relationship between God's providence, sovereign control, and the choices that you and I make every day. But we've been concentrating, instead of some of those more abstract questions, on the characteristics of God's providence. And to a large extent, our study of the characteristics of God's providence essentially uh, focus our eyes and our, our hearts upon the attributes of God. And thus far, we've stressed that God's providence is holy and just and good and sovereign. Now, this morning, I want to stress one more of these attributes or characteristics. God's providence is wise. Now, compared with the wisdom of God, my opinion counts for nothing. So does yours. What we think about this virus and how we should respond to it, this is of little significance. The heated rhetoric of our politicians and our media pundits, this is not worth a hill of beans. The Bible says, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. And this statement comes right after the assertion, he who is of a proud heart stirs up strife. In all of our heated debates, we tend to trust our own arguments and our own perspectives, and so much so that we tend to interrupt our opponent, and we want to say what we ought to want to say, and we don't listen. Instead of trusting in our own thinking, we are given this command in that place, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. You and I are finite, sinful human beings who are shaped by our own cultural and personal history. And out of our hearts and out of our mouths come every sort of self-justifying and other-accusing rationalization and argument. And so we would do well to pay attention to the prophet Isaiah when he says, Cease from man whose breath is in his nostrils, for of what, of, of what account is he? Let's turn our eyes and our ears away from the virus gurus, the political harangues, and the news pundits. Let's learn more and more, dear people, to train our ears and eyes in the direction of our great and glorious God. In the book of Isaiah, after the account of the way in which the Lord routed the Assyrian army that had surrounded Jerusalem, and after Hezekiah's foolishness with the envoys that came from Babylon, in the middle of the book comes one of the greatest chapters in all the Bible, Isaiah chapter 40. The voice of one crying in the wilderness cries out, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Verse 3. And again the voice cries out, All flesh is grass, and its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. And then later on the voice says, O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up and be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. And so above all in this series of sermons, this is what I want to say to you. Behold your God. In his recent book, The Possibility of Prayer, John Stark describes the mysterious privilege of coming into the presence of God. When we pray, he writes, we come with Christ into the mountain-melting presence of God. And he also says this, Prayer is the daily habit of opening your mouth wide for all the fullness of God. And so my supreme desire in these sermons is that you would behold your God, that you would enter into the mountain-melting presence of God, 
that you might open your mouth wide for all the fullness of God. Now, as I announced a moment ago, our meditation this morning is going to focus on the wisdom of God's providence. In particular, I want to show you four ways in which God's providence is wise. It is incomparably wise. It is illimitable. It is undeceivable. And it is unfathomable. First thing I want to stress with you this day is that the wisdom of God's providence is incomparable. And here I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 28. In verses 23 through 28 of Isaiah 28, Isaiah refers to the process that's involved for the farmer and the miller in making the flour that's required for baking a loaf of bread. It involves plowing the field, turning the soil, breaking up the clods, leveling the surface, sowing the seed, threshing the grain, and finally crushing and grinding the required flour. All of those steps are outlined in those verses. And each step takes place in, in due order. And it doesn't go on and on and on each step. The plowman doesn't keep on and on plowing indefinitely. And thereafter, each step takes place with a view to the next. And in modern farming, the plow turns the soil over. The discs then break up the clods. And then the harrow loosens and levels the soil. And then the farmer, he sows his seed and he waits until the grain is mature. He harvests and he threshes the grain, and then he has it ground up into flour. And likewise, by means of his spiritual discipline, God plows up our hearts. He works the soil. He gathers in the harvest. He pulverizes us with a view to our ultimate profit. And the discipline of God's providence, it is often very unpleasant. We don't like to be ground up. We don't like to be dissed and harrowed and so forth. It's often very painful. In Hebrews 12, 11, we're told no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And the point that's being made here in Isaiah chapter 28 is that it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And it happens that in this way, behind the frowning providence, there hides a smiling face. And what's the result, therefore, of all this chastening? Well, notice what we read in Isaiah 28 and verse 29. This also comes from the Lord of hosts, who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. His wisdom cannot be calculated in comparison with ours. His knowledge is infinite. It is beyond measure. And his counsel, his wisdom is wonderful and his wisdom is excellent. And especially notice here it says his counsel is wonderful. And the word that's translated wonderful to mean surpassing, extraordinary, beyond one's power. And then in the second half of the verse, it refers to God's wisdom. And the Hebrew word that's used here, it means sound, efficient wisdom. Wisdom is the sound, efficient application of knowledge that secures a desired end. And the Hebrew word in the second half of the verse, it, it, it goes on to speak of the fact that this wisdom is, it, it is excellent. It is absolutely incomparable. Now, the, the Puritan Thomas Boston, I think, therefore, he rightly observes, infinite wisdom always proposes the most excellent ends 
in all its operations and uses the best methods for accomplishing its ends. This wisdom is excellent, or, or it could be translated magnificent, marvelous. Another verse in the Old Testament, Psalm 147 and verse 5, it says, His knowledge is infinite. It is beyond measure. It could also be translated. His wisdom can't be calculated in comparison with our wisdom. It's incomparable. And so we read in Romans 16, 27, To the only wise God be glory through Jesus Christ forever. He is the only wise God. He is without peer in wisdom. His wisdom is in a category all by itself. It's an incomparable wisdom. Charles Hodge concludes his commentary on the book of Romans with these memorable words, summing up the meaning of that verse. He says, God alone is wise. He charges his angels with folly. And the wisdom of men is foolishness with him. To God, therefore, the profoundest reverence and the most implicit submission are due. Men should not presume to call in question what he has revealed or consider themselves competent to sit in judgment on the truth of his declarations or the wisdom of his plans. To God alone, to God only wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. And so this is what I wanted to say in the first place. The wisdom of God's providence is incomparable. And now we move in the second place to notice that the wisdom of God's providence is illimitable. It has no limits that can be put upon it. And here I want you to turn with me to Psalm 104. God's providence includes his provision. And the word providence comes from that word provision in the Latin. And uh, it includes provision as well as government. In Psalm 104, it dwells especially on this aspect of God's providence, the way he provides for all of his creatures. For instance, in verses 10 through 13, it's, they speak of, of how he provides water for every beast of the field and a home for the birds of the heavens. And then in verses 14 to 18, how he provides grass for the cattle, vegetation for the service of man, trees for the birds, the high hills for the wild goats, and the cliffs for the rock badgers. And then in verses 19 to 22, provisions for the beasts of the forest and prey for the young lions. As I watch the National Geographic videos of our national parks, or the Planet Earth series and other such videos, I'm stunned by the remarkable way which various creatures survive. In deserts where the naked eye can see nothing but waves and dunes of sand, nothing else, and where the sand gets so hot that most creatures would not survive even beyond a minute or two. There are insects in that setting. There are scorpions and reptiles especially suited to that hostile environment. And even in the depths of the sea, in depths that are pitch black, where not a single ray of light, it's not even the twilight zone anymore, it's absolute darkness. Down in those depths, there are stunning, luminescent creatures of many different varieties that attract their mates through their luminescence and feed upon the tiny fragments of organic material that sink to the bottom of the ocean. 
and vividly in my mind are these little tiny skinny fish that don't swim horizontally but bounce up and down, and they're luminescent. They're stunning to watch, and many other such creatures of amazing variety. There are sharks that are completely blind but find their prey by their intense sense of smell. And every time I watch these kinds of videos, my heart is filled with worship. It's filled with adoration for the wisdom and for the, uh, the power and omniscience of a God that, that displayed his creative power in every nook and every cranny of his wide creation. His providence is illimitable. It's so extensive, it's impossible for any limitations to be ascribed to it. And therefore, after giving this description of these different creatures in different parts of the world, we come in verses 24 and 25 to read what the psalmist says when he says, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. This great and wide sea in which are innumerable teeming things, living things, both small and great. And what is true of God's provision is also true of his government. His wisdom is manifold. It is, it is various. It is something that can't be limited to one creature or to one situation. And likewise with his government. Consider the fact that God's wise providence, it's not merely at work in the case of just isolated believers. We speak of sometimes wonderful providences in which maybe we were delivered from some danger. But it's not, you see, that the lives of individual Christians are hedged about and are the object of God's guidance while the whole rest of creation is in chaos. As we look around us, and even in these days, as we hear the cacophony of voices being raised in this current pandemic, it might seem to us sometimes that everything's about to break into a million pieces in our country and in our world. But however perplexing and confusing God's providential administrations might appear to our puny and narrow brains, yet all these things are the outworking of the highest wisdom and the deepest counsel. Our omniscient, infinitely wise God, he is orchestrating his all-encompassing plan with such consummate skill that in eternity, the millions that are gathered, the billions that are gathered together in that place, with one voice, the whole assembly and church of the firstborn, all will exclaim, He has done all things well. There are no limitations or exceptions to the wisdom of God's providential government. It is illimitable. God considers all the factors that are involved in any circumstance or any event. Now, we've seen the opposite happening in our country in recent days. Certain governors have so narrowly focused on avoiding the problem of having hospitals trained beyond their capacities that they actually made the decision of having elderly COVID-19 patients shipped back to nursing homes where thousands then have been infected and have died. And we have shaken our heads and we, we, we've said, how could such a stupid decision be made? Why would they do that? How did anybody think that it would be a good idea to put such patients together with the very ones most vulnerable to this virus? But who knows what boneheaded decision you or I would have made if we were in their place? 
If we were trying to manage all this and we got fixated on the issue of hospitals being overrun, we might have made the same decision. And it's often the case that we only consider one aspect of a given problem to the neglect of many other considerations. Now, my aim here in mentioning this is not to get you to despise these leaders that make foolish decisions. My point here is this. Never even one time does God fail to take into account all the factors of a given situation. He never gets so distracted by one aspect of the situation that he makes a tragic boneheaded decision. And in eternity, there's not going to be one individual who can come before God and can prove that this or that was a time in which God made a mistake. And nobody is going to take a poll in glory and conclude that God has a 50% approval rating. In fact, nobody's going to take a poll then and find out that God has a 99% approval rating. The whole host of heaven all will exclaim with one voice, He has done all things well. Well, we've seen that the wisdom of God's providence is incomparable. It's illimitable. But now in the third place, notice with me that the wisdom of God's providence is undeceivable. And here I want you to turn with me to the first chapter of the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 1. And here I, what I have in mind is the fact that God is never hoodwinked or outsmarted by his opponents. He can't be tricked into making the wrong decision. Now in warfare, one of the most important tactics of successful generals is the tactic of deception. Before D-Day, a great amount of effort was made to deceive the Germans about the identity of the place where the invasion of France would take place. And the Allies, they needed nearly a whole year to prepare for that complicated offensive. But they knew that the entire D-Day mission could be doomed to failure if the Nazis gained even 48 hours of advance notice on the location and timing of the invasion. So they launched an elaborate disinformation campaign, a codenamed Operation Bodyguard, to induce the enemy to make faulty strategic decisions. And vital to Operation Bodyguard's success were more than a dozen German spies in Britain who had been discovered and arrested and flipped by the British, British intelligence officers. And the Allies, they spoon-fed, therefore, reams of faulty information to these Nazi double agents to pass on to Berlin. For instance, a pair of double agents named Mutt and Jeff, sounds like a cartoon, but it's real. These, these double agents, they relayed detailed reports about the fictitious British, British Fourth Army that was amassing in Scotland with plans to join with the Soviet Union in invasion of Norway. And to further the illusion, the Allies fabricated radio chatter about cold weather issues like ski bindings or the operation of tank engines in sub-zero temperatures. And the ruse worked because Hitler, he sent a whole fighting division up to Scandinavia just weeks before D-Day. Now, the most logical place in Europe for the D-Day invasion was France's Pas-de-Calais. It was 150 miles northeast of Normandy. It was the closest point to Great Britain across the British Channel. And the Allies, they passed over that location, though. It had the most heavy fortifications, 
And they wanted to delude the Nazis, nevertheless, into thinking that that's where they were going to, they were going to invade. And to give the appearance of a massive troop buildup in southeast England, they created a large phantom fighting force headed by George Patton. This is what the radio chatter talked about. The Nazis, they thought a lot about Patton. They thought he was the best general. And they broadcast hours of fictitious radio transmissions about troop and supply movements there. And they deceived the Nazis' aerial reconnaissance planes by fashioning dummy aircraft and an armada, uh, armada of decoy landing crafts that were composed only of painted canvases pulled over steel frames. They even deployed inflatable Sherman tanks, and they moved them to different locations under the cover of night. And just prior to this invasion, the Allies stepped up their aerial attacks on Pas de Calais to throw these Nazis right up, right to the very end, to throw them off the scent. It's, I think, perhaps one of the most, most amazing acts of deception you see in the history of warfare. Now, because God's plans embrace all facts and all contingencies, every action, every word, it's impossible for him to be outwitted by the enemy. Nobody could pull off on God what the Allies did to Germany. And therefore, it is infinitely easy for our God to take the wise in their own craftiness. Here in Exodus chapter 1, we have an account of a consultation that took place between Pharaoh and his men. And here we have the greatest monarch at that time of the day, the most powerful ruler, one whose kingdom was the repository of much of the wealth and power and learning and civilization of the world. And listen to what he says to his men of state. Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply. And it happened in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. And then it talks about how they set taskmasters over them and various steps that they took to try to subdue the emerging power of the Israelites. But the words especially I want you to notice is what they say. Let's deal shrewdly with them. Let's deal wisely with them. And so they formed their plans. But from beginning to end, they're frustrated with one difficulty after another in achieving these plans. And what was the result of their carefully laid plans? Well, for the outcome, go and find out by, stand, by standing with Moses and Aaron and Miriam on the banks of the Red Sea. Take a look at the dead bodies of Pharaoh's mighty army floating on the water and on the banks of the, of the Red Sea. Take a look and see the result of all this wise dealing. And I would say go too to the hall of the Sanhedrin plotting Jesus' death. Go to Pilate's inner chamber, to, to Herod's court, and see what comes of all their wise dealing. The rulers of the earth take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointing, and they say, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. And also, you remember, involved in the plotting that came in those days was the plot that took place between Satan and Judas and how Judas agreed with Satan's suggestion. 
And what has come of all these wise dealings that were that took place then? Their schemes, instead of frustrating God's plans, they fulfilled those plans. And so they proved the truth. There is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. Proverbs 21.30 The wisdom of God's providence, it cannot be outwitted. It cannot be outsmarted. It is undeceivable. Now you perhaps have gotten very distressed as you have heard of the wicked plots that have been taking place in high places in recent years, beginning even before our president took office. And perhaps you've been filled with distress over the thought that that evil will never be exposed fully, and perhaps that evildoers will get away with what they did. And you hear even now the distortions and outright lies being peddled by media pundits who are so filled with hate that they actually believe their own falsehoods. And the thought that these lies will be rewarded in the next, in the next election, it distresses you. You watch these things, and it bothers you. Sometimes maybe above, these things bother you more than the virus going around. And know this, though, my friend. Know this, dear people. There is no wisdom. There is no understanding, no counsel against the Lord. In the end, it is God's wisdom that's going to stand. For a time, yes, it may seem that evildoers get the upper hand. Jezebel and her liars, they got the upper hand in the judicial murder of Nabal. But in the end, their so-called wisdom was exposed for its folly. And Jezebel's body was eaten by the dogs. And so it will be with every evil plot, whether it's in this age or in the age to come. The wisdom of God is undeceivable. And now in the fourth place, I want you to notice with me that the wisdom of God's providence is unfathomable. Turn with me, please, to Romans chapter 11. The wisdom of God's providence is unfathomable. Now, based upon the word of God, we can say of every event or action in the universe that it is part of the outwork in God's eternal plan. Ephesians 1 tells us that we have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. So we can say of every event, in some way, it's included in God's plan. It's included in the outworking of the providential outworking of that plan. But what is impossible for us, dear people, in every situation is to provide an intellectually satisfactory answer to the why question. We could say, yes, it is in his plan, it must be. But why? Why did he do this? We can say of the death of Pastor Craig Harris of Grace Baptist Church of Chambersburg that it happened because God willed it to do so. But the subsequent question, why did God will it to be so? That's more difficult to answer. Now, this doesn't mean that God is arbitrary or capricious. We may rest in the fact that in the mind of God, there are good and wise reasons for what has taken place. Now, in Romans chapter 9 through 11, Paul has been wrestling with God's purpose to blind the eyes of most Israelites to the glory of Christ. And this was stunning news to Jewish believers that read it. Paul explains that this took place in order that the Gentiles, who were not of God's people, how they might become the people of God. 
And he also stresses that it is God's election that is the ultimate matter, ultimate decider of this matter. He chose Jacob and rejected Esau. And this brings on the inevitable protest. This is not fair. And even to this day, many people believe that the idea of God would choose some and leave others. This is not fair, they say. And so God, and so Paul responds, oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him that formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? And you can read that in chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. And then in chapter 11, Paul goes on to explain that Israel's rejection is not final. But as we read Paul's explanation, there's much of what he says that's difficult to grasp. It's one of the hardest portions of Scripture to expound. And in the fullest sense of the word, in this life especially, there's much about this that we can't understand. And with respect to God's purpose, there are depths, you see, that we cannot plumb. And for this reason, Paul stops his discussion of all these things, and he breaks out instead into adoration and praise. And so we read at the end of Romans chapter 11, beginning with verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. In God's wisdom, there are depths that we cannot fathom. It is unfathomable wisdom. What is God doing in our lives? What is he doing these days in our nation and throughout the world? He's doing a billion things we can't know. Psalm 40 and verse 5, Many, O Lord my God, are your wonderful works which you have done, and your thoughts toward us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. But my friends, not only are his thoughts and actions and purposes in these turbulent times beyond counting, we can't number them, we can't give a record of them all, but beyond that, they are inscrutable. They are unfathomable. And this is why Paul exclaims in this passage how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. But Paul wasn't just saying this is a postmodernist since it's so inscrutable just close your Bibles and make up your own reality. That's not what he's saying. Instead, he's saying that after all that I've explained to you, nevertheless, when we begin to touch on the wisdom of God's ways, we have come to an ocean that is unfathomable. We have come to an ocean that is infinitely deep. We have come to depths that we will never be able to fathom. And yet we may be assured that though we don't fully know why, God knows why he is doing whatever he is doing. There's no better illustration of this, I think, than the case of Job. I'd like you to turn with me now, Job, to chapter 23. Job doesn't know why he's going through the overwhelming and excruciating sufferings that have enveloped him. He has no idea about the debate that took place between God and Satan. How God had left Job in Satan's hands to torment him in every way, except for taking his life. He doesn't know that God has done all this in order to prove Job's integrity 
He doesn't know that when his integrity has been proven, he will be blessed even more than he was before. He doesn't know any of these things. They're hidden from him. Satan has said that Job's only serving God because of what he's going to get. And so God said, okay, take it all away. Job is still going to cling to me. But Job knew none of this. And his friends, they all claimed to know why he was suffering, but they were all wrong. And even so, there are depths to the providences that come upon us that we cannot fathom. John Murray, I believe, is one of the greatest theologians of the 20th century. And in a sermon entitled, The Mystery of Providence, Professor Murray writes this, The providence of God is often a dark and impenetrable abyss to us. Clouds and darkness are round about him. His way is in the sea and his path in the great waters. His footsteps are not known. And then Murray quotes Job 11, verses 7 through 9. Can you search out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. And indeed, there are occasions when at least in part, we can grasp some of the reasons for certain events of God's providence. But these are just parts of his ways. How little do we know? And it was this dark, impenetrable abyss. This was what was at that time enveloping Job. He had not he had no access, you see, to the transactions that had took, taken place in the unseen realm between God and Satan. He didn't know Satan's challenge. He didn't know what God has in view. And had he known this, it would have not eliminated all the pain that he had, but it would have changed the picture at least for him. And what do we read in Job chapter 23? We read of his wrestlings with this. We read in verse 8 and following, Look, I go forward but he's not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he works on the left hand, I cannot behold him. And when he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him. He wrestles with us. He says, oh, that I might find him. I can't find him. I go this way. I go that way. I can't see him. I don't understand. It seems that he's gone. And from what he knew of God, though, he was still able to find consolation. And so we read on the next verse, verse 10. But he knows the way that I take. Likewise, as you and I go through dark and mysterious times, this is our resting place. And when we're faced with the mystery of God's secret will, we can say, I don't know, but I know that God knows. And the God whom I know and love, I know that this God can never do anything wrong. And I know that he is good in all that he does. There are mysteries to God's providence that we will never understand, even in part, until we get to heaven. Let me illustrate by a parable. This is fiction, but I think it's a parable that helps. There was a hermit, and having seen an innocent shepherd punished with death, he began to distrust God's providence. And leaving his cave and going forth into the world, an angel met and journeyed with this hermit. And the first night they were entertained by a knight whose infant child the angel strangled. And from their next kind host, the angel took a priceless golden cup, which he then gave to the next host, a churlish man, 
would only allow them to sleep in a shed. And then passing by a poor man on a bridge, the angel pushed him into a stream and he was drowned. Well, by now the hermit, he thought that this companion was a devil and not an angel. And the angel then explained to him that if the shepherd had not been slain, he would have committed great crimes. That the man whose child he strangled would have wasted his life in heaping up treasures for that child and ruined it. And that the golden cup would have led its possessor to a drunkard's grave. And that the man that he drowned would himself have committed murder had he had gone half a mile further. And that he gave the cup to the inhospitable rich man who received his reward in this life and at least got a little blessing. Now, I suppose that even when we arrive in glory, the mysteries of God's providence are not going to be tied together in that neat, tidy way as it is in that story. Many of God's purposes are complex and spiritual in nature. But from Job's case, and from this little parable that I just told you, in a dark and mysterious times, let us learn to refer everything back to God. Job found solace in this thought, he knows the way that I take. You may not know, but you can be sure that God knows. And in God's perfect knowledge and in God's perfect wisdom, there you can find rest for your soul. Well, having given you these four aspects of the wisdom of God's providence, I want to come to some lessons that we can draw from this. And the first thing is this, that we have here a lesson in submission. Let us learn to submit to divine providence. Don't murmur at those things that have been ordered by divine wisdom. If somebody has not treated you the way you think that they should have treated you, remember that that person treated you the way that God ordained you to be treated. That was part of God's plan. And God's providence is the master wheel that turns all the lesser wheels of this world. And from all that takes place, God is going to bring forth glory in the end. And therefore, take the posture of the psalmist. I was dumb and did not open my mouth because you did it. Psalm 39 and verse 9. Joseph, you see, he could have carried bitterness toward his brothers to the day he died. But he recognized that, beyond, that behind the mistreatment he had received from them, behind it all was the hand of God. You meant it for evil, he said to them, but God meant it for good. And let's not imagine that if the decisions of providence were left up to us, that we would have made better decisions than God. What a blasphemous thought. And yet every time we allow the rough instruments that God uses in our lives to make us bitter and to make us angry, we forget that behind the instruments of our trials is the hand of God. Ultimately, our complaint is not with the instruments, therefore, but it's with God. And therefore, brothers and sisters, let us be content for God to rule the world. Remember that God has expressly fashioned your trials, especially with you in mind. As the Puritan Thomas Watson puts it, your clothes cannot be so fit for you as your crosses. And so here we have this lesson in submission. But in the second place, here also we have a lesson in acceptation. Let us learn to accept what God gives us. Let us learn to trust God when his providence seems to run contrary to his promises. This often happens. God promises one thing, and it seems what he's doing to us is just the exact opposite. 
And yet, God says, trust me, even when we don't understand. My promise is still true. Day and night, remember, God had promised to, to give David the crown. That was his promise. But it seemed the providence of God ran contrary to that. Day and night, he's being pursued by Saul. And in his distress, he said to his dear friend Jonathan, there's, not, there's just a step between me and death. But throughout that long ordeal, God was teaching David to trust him. Now you have prayed that God is going to enable you to conquer your sinful anger. God says, ask and you shall receive. That's a promise, right? You pray and pray and pray. Lord, help me to get victory over this anger. There's a time after time you plead with God. And yet in his providence, what happens? He puts you right in the same room with a supervisor or some work associate that is exceedingly provoking. You say to yourself, how, how is this an answer to my prayer? He needs to take me away from this kind of stuff. I get angry too easily. I've been praying, Lord, Lord, take away my anger, please. And what does he do? He puts this person in the room with me. Or maybe you have a child that tests your patience day after day. Time after time, you've pled with God to enable you to mortify your sinful anger. You pray to a God who promises to answer your prayers. And so you wonder, why did God give me this difficult child? And here you need to learn to accept, you need to learn to even embrace the trial that's been assigned to you. It's through that trial that you will see the rottenness of your own heart. It's through that trial that you will cast yourself upon God's grace more intensely. Or maybe the particular struggle that you have is fear. You pray for the kind of faith that will enable you to trust God in the face of danger. And there's a lot of danger around in these days. Every day now, you need to go out and you face the potential of encountering somebody maybe that's got the virus and you don't know. And David learned to accept and even embrace, you see, the providence that exposed him to danger. And so in Psalm 4 and verse 8, he says, I will both lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Now for a man like David who was surrounded by his enemies, when is he more vulnerable than when he goes to sleep? Worry would keep him up. He's vulnerable then. And yet he came to the place where he knew that he needed sleep. It was God's providence. It was God's purpose to get some sleep. And so you see the dark providence of his life being on the run, fleeing from Saul, fleeing from his enemy, going out to fight enemies. This, these dark providences were eventually used by God to teach David to rest in God's 24-7 care. He cares for me when I'm asleep like he cares for me when I'm awake. I'm going to go to sleep. He learned to commit it all, you see, all his thoughts, all his fears to the loving care of God. And in a similar manner, it might seem that God's promise to meet with us as we gather together in his presence of the Lord's day, it might seem that this is totally contradicted by the shutdown that has come upon us. His special presence is a gathered assembly. Now what's happened here? And it might seem that his promise, you see, in the Great Commission to be with us as we go to the ends of the earth with the gospel, that this is also be contradicted by our current circumstances. But may it be that this very trial that God has chosen to bring upon his church would increase our longing for that presence that we now miss, that it would intensify our determination to speak with that person that 
We've just taken for granted we're going to have lots of opportunities to speak to. When you were free to speak, as you faced that person, for instance, you didn't do that. And now you can't. And so your desire to do it is intensified. And so I, I don't know the purposes of all of this, but you can see little glimpses here and there of what God's purpose might be. And we can be certain this of this, that there is wisdom in God's purpose. And therefore, one of the lessons we need to learn is that of embracing that wisdom, accepting that wisdom. And so we have this as an invitation, as an exhortation to acceptation. And then in your outlines, you have a third lesson, and I'm going to bypass and come to our final lesson. The third lesson being biblical meditation. As I began to think about that. I thought, that's, that's going to be a whole sermon. And so I want to come now in the fourth place to say here also is a call to admiration. Let us learn to admire the providence of God. In God's ceaseless support and maintenance of the universe, the ungodly, they don't see anything to admire. This has just all happened by way of chance, millions of years, and so on. There's nothing to adore, you see, in what they see. And if God were to stop the rotation of the earth for several hours, they might say, well, this, this is the hand of God. This is something we can't explain. But the earth, you see, can rotate every 24 hours. The sun might appear to come up in the east and go down in the west every single day. 365 times a year. And yet nothing in this is, is thought about God. They don't see God in this. A senseless man does not know, nor does a fool understand. Psalm 92 and verse 6. And likewise, you see, such a man, he can lose, this, this I'm talking about an ungodly person who doesn't think about God. He can lose total control of his car on the ice and he could go craning off and just barely miss cars on the right and on the left. And he comes out of the thing without even a scratch on his car. And all he thinks is, whew, well, it's a good thing. I didn't really want to have to spend that $500 deductible and fix my car. That's all he thinks. He doesn't admire what God has just done. Now, sometimes God's providence is remarkable. There are many events, and even in our nation's history, that have the providence of God written all over them. In Michael Medved's book, God's Hand on America, Divine Providence in the Modern Era. He tells of how William Seward pushed very hard for the United States to purchase Alaska. Other people, they mocked this idea. They said it's Seward's icebox. And earlier on, before this purchase was made, God spared Seward's life in a remarkable way. Nine days before Lincoln's assassination, Seward was in bed, almost helpless. When Lewis Powell, an accomplice of John Wilkes Booth, the man that murdered Lincoln, Powell came to murder Seward. And what delivered him was a contraption that the doctors had devised, a device made of metal plates that covered his throat and set his jaw in place. And Powell brought his knife down at least four times against Seward's throat, but it kept hitting that metal plate. And if Seward had not survived... America would have not acquired Alaska from Russia in 1867. And in 1962, the Soviet Union would have had missiles not just in Cuba, but in Juneau, Alaska. And Seward also, by the way, he pressed for the acquisition of unclaimed islands in the Pacific. 
And apart from his persistence, America would have not acquired the Midway Atoll, which was a crucial little speck in the ocean to winning the war in in the World War II in the Pacific. Amazing providence, seeing these things decades in advance. Same invisible hand is at work in our individual lives. In answer to prayer, the prayer of Abraham's servant when he came to a well that was outside the city of Nahor, Rebekah came and offered to draw from the well and give both him and his camel a drink, you remember. An evangelist named G.D. Watson, he relates this. I was once on my way from South Carolina to Texas to work in meetings for the Lord. I had only a limited time to reach my destination before the Sabbath, and a very limited amount of money to pay for my expenses. When I aborted the train in Atlanta, this was people went by train, not planes back then. When I boarded the train in Atlanta, the conductor said the southbound mail from New York is over two hours late, and we're going to have to wait for it. And this would throw us over two hours behind Birmingham, Atlanta, where I was supposed to connect with the train for New Orleans. And that's the place where he was supposed to preach a series of meetings. And on inquiring if the through train to New Orleans would wait for us at Birmingham, he said, no, for that train is always on time. It doesn't wait for late trains. Your only way is to lay over at Birmingham for the night. I at once sat down and leaned my head against the window. And closing my eyes, told my Heavenly Father all about it, that I was working for his precious son, that I belonged entirely to his son. The interest of his only begotten son was infinitely greater than all the railroads, and that he saw my scanty means and my limited time before the Sabbath. Would he please make that fast-bound train to New Orleans in some way to get delayed just as long as we should be? And then he said a sweet restfulness settled upon my spirit, and I felt like smiling. When we reached Birmingham, he writes, sure enough, there stood the long train waiting for us. It had been detained in an unusual way by something they could not, they could hardly account for. And when I asked the conductor how it happened to be so late, he said, we don't know unless it was to get passengers from Atlanta. And I told him of my prayer. And I said, I wish you railroad men would put your trust in the living God. Well, in these days of national and even world upheaval, I have no doubt that when it's all over, there are going to be many stories about God's deliverances, many stories about God's providence in these days. Let's look for them. And let's learn to admire the God whose invisible hand rules the world and everything in it. And even when the providence of God is dark and mysterious, let us still admire the God who does all things well. Let's pray together. Most blessed and glorious God, how we do praise you, how we do adore you for your wise purposes that are unfathomable to us, but known to you. How we bless you, how we magnify you that your providential workings Always, it's undeceivable. It is unfrustratable. It is a providence that will accomplish all your perfect will. And we bless you that in these days of strife, these days of confusion, these days of great fear about what, what the future holds for our country, we thank you, Lord, that you are orchestrating these events with your wise hand. 
Help us, Lord, to trust you. Help us even in times when individually we go through dark, mysterious times to say to you, Lord, you know the way that I take and to trust ourselves into your hand. Help us to adore you when we begin to see what you have done and enable us, O Lord, to join that great host in the last day when together we will say he has done all things well. Help us, Lord, to persevere until that day. We pray it in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Now, before we conclude our service, as Chris plays for us the hymn that we sang before the sermon, I invite you to join in meditation on the words that are going to appear on your screen. God bless you. Amen.